Amen. Thank you, Chancel Choir. Uh, our scripture today, we're continuing in Revelation uh, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Alrighty, are we ready to dive back into or to wade slowly back into the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible? Last week was Children's Sunday. I know many of you were here. It was an amazing Sunday here. See the young folks up here, the tale of the three trees and the great music. There was a great spirit here. I'm so grateful for the amazing children's ministry we have in this place and for the lives that are being touched and the memories that are being made. We're grateful. Two weeks ago, though, we talked about the throne representing the power and the majesty and the authority of our God, and we talked about the Lamb representing the compassionate and forgiving and for us nature of God, and the Lamb and the throne together. That's the gospel, and it reminds us that Everything is going to be all right. I remember my last quarter in seminary at Candler School of Theology at Emory. I was a full-time student chaplain at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta. The woman was a patient in the hospital, and I got a call to go see her because word had come to her that her husband had just died. And when I arrived in her room, I found some of her children attempting to console her. And they kept saying over and over again, Mama, everything is all right. It was not. A nuclear bomb had just exploded in her life. But someday, by the grace of God, everything for her and for all of us will be all right. 
Today's passage has to do with victory. The word in the text that Andrew read says salvation. Some versions, translations of scripture say victory. And so I wanted to focus on that word. It has to do, this passage has to do with victory. V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. I thought about having a group of cheerleaders try to show up here today and to help us with this passage, to help us get into the spirit of the passage. Victory, victory is our cry, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. I remember that cheer from my high school days, and I suppose it's still around, and folks are still using that same cheer. It was a good one. Anyway, I thought better about having cheerleaders in a worship service. Memory sometimes is a great gift, and some things need to be kept there. <laughs> victory, victory is our cry. I've known many folks across the years, and many of you too, who like to win. Just like to win, including the guy that shows up in my mirror most days. We are talking about a card game with friends, a, a video game maybe with younger friends, backyard badminton or croquet or a game of checker sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch of the Cracker Barrel restaurant, just like to win. Games like Monopoly or Clue, played on a kitchen table on a cold, dark winter night. And we like to win, as evidenced by screaming at the television. I still believe you can change the outcome of a football game by screaming at the television. I've seen it happen. And most of us would rather win than lose. Sometimes we have to be more subtle. A position comes open at the office, a promotion it would be. Two folks are being considered and only one will be chosen. Probably not a good idea to have t-shirts printed up with our picture on the front and our resume on the back and to hang out outside of the HR director's office for as long as necessary. I'm thinking something like that would be inappropriate at best and tacky at worst. Victory, whether in sports, business, or politics, always comes with a steep price tag. Always. You may be familiar with these words from one of the greatest coaches of all time. I think most folks would consider him such. Vince Lombardi said, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear is that moment when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle victorious. Five-star general, later president of the United States, Dwight David Eisenhower once said, there is no victory at bargain basement prices. Verse 10 from our text declares, they cried out with a loud voice, salvation or victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's one reason we sang that beautiful Lenten hymn is our middle hymn today. What wondrous love is this? The third stanza to God and to the Lamb. I'll sing on. It's important to have that concept in mind. Recall from what you already knew from our conversation a couple of weeks ago and from your own reading and your own study that this is the lamb who was slaughtered. Even Jesus the Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This was a victory procured at great cost. There was no bargain basement 
kind of thing going on here. None of those low, low, low prices involved in this life-changing for all time transaction that took place at Calvary. At this point, I want us to consider our text in more detail, but before we do that, to fill in a little bit of the gap between our text from Revelation two weeks ago and, and what we're looking at today. After the panoramic vision of God enthroned and the heavenly court, and who can forget that vision as you read about it and try to picture it, chapters four and five, that is completed. And the lamb proceeds with his task of opening the seven seals of the scroll. The opening of the first six seals is described in chapter six, but before the opening of the seventh seal, which is described in chapter eight, there is this interlude, and we've read part of that today in chapter seven. And the interlude comprises two visions. The first is that of the 144,000 who enjoy divine protection. And the second is that of a multitude of people gathered around the throne of God. And it's this second vision that really serves as the basis of what we want to talk about for just a little while today. The scene is the same as that depicted in the earlier vision that we considered a couple of weeks ago. God sitting enthroned, encircled by the heavenly court, the 24 living elders, the four living creatures, the angelic host. As before, they praise God and they praise the Lamb as those to whom full and final salvation, final victory belongs to our God and to the Lamb. What's different this time is the host of worshipers is extended even further. The earlier vision ended with all the living creatures ascribing their worship to God. But now there's a vast innumerable multitude drawn from all the peoples of the earth. They're standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They're also holding palm branches in their hands. Their white clothing symbolizes purity and righteousness in the palm Branch symbolizes Jewish nationalism. There was something going on on that Palm Sunday, wasn't it, when Jesus rode into town and the people were waving the palm branches. It was a symbol of how they believed in themselves and their people. It was a way that they would send a signal to the Roman Empire that we will ultimately be victorious. As they ascribe salvation to God and to the Lamb, the heavenly court bows in honorific response and they pay similar tribute. The members of this vast multitude are still unidentified. So one of the elders asked John, who is the seer, the visionary, the writer of this letter, who these white clad persons are and where they've come from. We are told that they are those who have endured great hardship. Their robes have been purified by the blood of the Lamb. They are the martyred saints who have been vindicated by God and now become part of the heavenly company. Their lot is described in verses 15 through 17. This end time vision has three features. The first feature of the vision is unceasing worship of God in the heavenly temple. Now they turn their attention around the heavenly throne, serving in the temple day and night, and they live under the protection of God's own presence. The prophet Ezekiel reminds us in chapter 37, my dwelling will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The second feature of the vision has to do with physical deprivation. Life with God in the heavenly court excludes hunger and thirst and scorching heat. The description is a direct 
quotation from another prophet, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, they won't hunger or thirst. The burning heat and sun will not strike them because one who has compassion for them will lead them and will guide them by springs of water. Also excluded in this vision are tears. The third feature of the vision is the presence of the lamb in their midst as the shepherd. The lamb is now in vision as the shepherd who lives and walks and is among his people, his sheep, in language reminiscent of the 23rd Psalm. The saints, the shepherd, guides the saints to springs of living water, leads them through the valley of the shadow of death and grief and pain and loss. Henry Brenton tells us that the vision of the book or the letter of Revelation assures us that faithful people will be gathered from all over the world and given eternal presence to the glory of God. God and the Lamb will have the final victory and the people will join in this worship and this praise knowing that everything is now all right. When we face dawning challenges and painful hardships, it's frustrating, isn't it, to be told, well, you just have to endure it. You have to put up with it. We want to be assured that we can overcome the challenge and eliminate the hardship. A message of endurance is not always what we want to hear because we want a more immediate answer. But Revelation challenges us to be steadfast in our faith, to believe that victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Endurance becomes possible only when we gain the perspective of heaven and realize God is in control. That's a simple statement in some ways, but that's a hard one for us sometimes, isn't it? We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. If we can see the final and glorious victory beyond the battles, we will be strengthened to fight on. Are there options to enduring? Do we have to endure? Are there other ways to go, other things we can do? As I answer that question, we go back to talk for a moment about the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor, most likely during the time this book was written, from A.D. 81 to 96. And he insisted on divine honors and had even leading citizens executed or banished because they refused to bow down to the emperor. They would not comply with his wishes. And when he appeared in public, the crowds were urged to shout, All hail to our Lord. He was just a human being, but they were urged to shout that everyone who addressed him in speech or in writing must begin with the words, Our Lord and God. Domitian put police power behind the state's claim to absolute loyalty and religious veneration. He wanted folk to bow down before him. In John's time, to refuse to accord divine honors to Domitian could be considered an act of political disloyalty or even treason. So what were the options for Christians in Asia Minor during the first century? What could they do? They were under tremendous political, economic, and social pressure to go through the formality of veneration, the image of Caesar, which was on the coins and in so many other places, or face some very fearful and dreadful consequences. What could these folk do? One option they had was to just quit. 
That's almost always an option, isn't it? When things are tough, just quit, just walk away. And some Christians chose this option. When they became followers of Jesus the Christ, they had not expected it to cost them their freedom, their reputation, their job, or their life. So they cursed Christ and bowed before the emperor. Another option, they could lie about it. It's always been an option, hasn't it? Some folks better at that than others. A good situation ethics case could be made and most probably was made by sincere and thoughtful people during this time and that day. Their reasoning was that the Romans did not understand the Christian faith and that it was not actually God's will for anyone to die for what they believed. Veneration of the emperor was only a formality. They could go through that without taking it seriously and all would be well. After all, true religion is a matter of the heart, not the formality of public worship, or so they thought. Still another option, fight. And although active resistance was hardly a possibility or reality for these folks, they were so overwhelmed, it was at least a theoretical option. John rejected the zealot option of violence. And then a fourth option, change the law. It's a theoretical possibility, but not something that was likely to happen. Government in the Roman Empire did not work by any democratic processes. Working within the system through a lobby in Rome to change an unjust law, not a real option. <laughs> Probably not going to happen. And then a fifth option, sort of adjust. Christian theology could be rethought in such a way that we could incorporate the ways God is revealed in other religions and other faiths, including the cult of worshiping the emperor. Intolerance and exclusiveness must be avoided so the Christians would do nothing that would show any disrespect for the Roman emperor at the time. And then, of course, there's always that option number six, just die. The present situation was an opportunity to bear witness to the reality and the meaning of the Christian faith in God and in Jesus as the only Lord, as the Lamb of God, even if it meant dying at the hands of the Romans, dying at the hands of the empire, just as Jesus himself had done. We endure by keeping the vision before us. Recall that the first feature of the vision was unceasing worship of God. It's amazing to think, or it is for me, at the very heart of things, at the very core of the universe, at the very center of everything that is, there is a sanctuary. And God is worshipped constantly and for all time and beyond all time. Shouldn't worship be an ongoing constant in our lives in this realm? Don't we all need to be reminded of the source of our strength and the source of our hope, the throne and the lamp? And shouldn't we take a clue, a clue from this vision that all people in all places at all times gathered in that sacred place that is beyond and above all places? And then recall the second feature of the vision is the exclusion of physical deprivation. No more hunger, no thirst. No scorching heat, no tears. With that understanding and with that vision before us, we endure in feeding the hungry and providing clean water for the thirsty around the globe and offering shelter to those who have none and offering to help heal and dry the tears of the brokenhearted. 
by assuming a mantle of servanthood in this world, we cause the vision to become clear for those who can see only want and pain and no way out of their imprisonment. Whether those things are something or things that have been imposed on them or things that have happened because of decisions they've made. Recall the third feature of the vision is that the lamb is in the midst of the multitude as the shepherd. And just that imagery, just changing that, that the lamb has become the shepherd is on one level more than, more than I can comprehend. That visual, that imagery is, is a bit overwhelming. But to know that the shepherd walks with us through the valley of the shadow gives us courage, the assurance we need to endure. And when we have that assurance, then we are empowered to walk with others who are broken and frightened and lost. If victory, victory is to be our cry, then we must receive the grace to endure. After all, what we're called to is a marathon, not a 50-yard dash. So I want to wrap up with a brief account of a marathoner who endured who claimed a victory, and now who is part of that throne, worshiping God on the throne and worshiping the lamb who was slain. And this story is a very brief story, a couple of paragraphs, from one of my favorite preachers in days past. He left us, left this world a few years ago. His name was Will Davis Campbell. He's from Tennessee. Um, he considered himself, or he called himself a bootleg Baptist preacher. And uh, this is one very short story that he tells. He said, I don't think much of the way greatness is gauged and history is taught. It seems to center around a few of the rich and famous. Those we call the, quote, little people seem not to exist. Wars are the generals. Big industries, the CEOs. The body politic, the famed. My phone rang at the time the networks were trying to decide whether to carry the State of the Union address of the president or the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial. Mrs. Booker passed a while ago, my caller said. Two famous people were on TV. I would call my friend back. No, no. Mrs. Fanny Booker. Ever hear that name? Well, she was a 90-year-old black lady in Mississippi. She never played football, but she ran a little camp school for rural black children during the Depression when the state would not educate them. They brought butter, eggs, peas, and cornmeal as tuition. She was never president, but while running a quilting bee, she taught black people how to register to vote. She was never a CEO, but she gave hope to hundreds of poor children. Few came to her funeral. The papers did not mention her passing. So let's speak her name now with all, for she was the stuff of authentic history, the essence of true greatness, Fanny Thomas Booker, and be grateful. She lived a victorious life, and maybe her life reminds us of others we've known who have lived in a victorious way. And on this Mother's Day, maybe some of those folks that we know and remember were our mothers and other strong women who cared for us and loved us and encouraged us along the way. A portrait of a victorious life. Perhaps you know some of those people. Perhaps God is calling us to live just that way. Amen.